0: My name is Phil. I grew up near Cincinnati, Ohio, in the great state of Kentucky. So that means I want the Bengals to win tonight. I feel a little guilty saying that, I've got to admit, because I bailed on those guys bad about the late 80s, early 90s. Like, nobody wanted to be a Bengals fan then. I didn't want to be, so I converted to Colts Nation when Jim Harbaugh was the quarterback. So it's a long time ago, my friends, and uh, since then I've been a proud Colts fan. My younger brother, I admire him. He's stuck with the Bengals all these years, and uh, he is, I mean, who day is his day today, so he's excited. This is orange. If the camera's out there are making it look some funky other color, it's really orange. I chose it. chose it specifically. Anyway, last week, we started a journey trying to understand how to better Love our neighbor. And it all revolves around this one moment that we're gonna focus on for the next three weeks where a person who's described as an expert in the law came to Jesus and posed a question. And his first question was this, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? We should be really careful to understand what exactly this man was asking when he posed this question because it was really a loaded question. You have to understand that up until this point, What it meant to have a relationship with God was really all about obedience to the law. But it also had something to do about heritage, had something to do about ethnicity, had something to do about lineage. You see, to be God's people, the Jewish people knew that that was them. They had been chosen by God. They had been promised to be blessed by God Almighty. And that promise goes all the way back to a moment in Genesis 12, where God said to Abraham these words. He says, I'm going to make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I'll make your name great and you'll be a blessing. I'll bless you. I'll bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's a promise, my friends, but don't miss the responsibility. God says that all people will be blessed through you. You see, to be God's people was something special for the Jewish people. They cherished that, but it was so interconnected between their ancestry and their religiosity that it caused them some problems when this guy named Jesus came onto the scene. And when they listened to what he was teaching, when they watched the way he lived his life, when They saw who he hung out with and how he loved people. It caused them to scratch their head. And so this expert in the law had to figure something out. What is it about this guy, Jesus? What is it that he is all about? How does he want us to love? And so he asked this question, was it take to inherit eternal life? Because he thought, I'm a Jew and I get it and I'm ready for it. But Jesus had something more to teach that expert in the law that day. You see, the covenant that God made with the people of Israel was never to be an exclusive promise or covenant with just one people, the Jews. God had blessed and provided for the Jews from that moment he made that promise to Abraham in many ways. He delivered them and rescued them from Egypt. He revealed his law and instructions to them, but it was all for a bigger purpose, not just for them, but for everybody. You see, we see in the New Testament fulfillment of that promise that God gave Abraham, that all people, all nationalities, all ethnicities would come to know who God is and they would have faith in Jesus. We see that being fulfilled in the New Testament. The instructions that God gave through the Old Testament law to help people understand how to live in relationship with him and how to live in holiness and how to love. The legal expert who approached Jesus that day, he knew that. Because when Jesus asked or answered his question with a question, he said, you know, well, what does the law say? That expert summed up the law perfectly. He said these words, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus affirmed his summary, but the man asked another question and it reeked of the same misunderstanding as that first one. He said, well, who is my neighbor again? The Jewish expert, he knew that the Old Testament law defined neighbor in a much broader sense than just somebody who lived next to you or somebody who was Jewish. The Old Testament law spoke of showing love to people who were young and old, poor, hurting, rich, your fellow Jew, as well as foreigners or aliens who live around you. All those equaled your neighbor. Luke says that the expert wanted to justify himself by narrowing Jesus in on just who was it that he had to love as his neighbor. And Jesus responded to that second question with one of his most popular parables. In fact, somebody described it as one of the most impactful stories that have ever been told. Let's look at how Jesus responded to that question, who is my neighbor? It was with a parable called the parable of the Good Samaritan. Follow along as I read. In reply, Jesus said, He went to him, he bandaged his wounds, he poured oil on, wine on them. Then he put the man on his own dog key, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, it said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. There's a lot to unpack in this story told by Jesus, so let's just get rolling. The man was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho that day, and he was most likely a Jewish man. He could have been a civic or religious leader. He was most likely wealthy, returning home to Jericho from a long day's work. He was very vulnerable traveling this road. It was a rugged road that meandered 17 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho. It had all kinds of caves and nooks and crannies along the side of the road where thieves would often make their place to pounce on any unsuspected traveler. And they did this man that day. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him. They robbed him. They left him for half dead alongside the road. He was violated and humiliated. This man was in a bad condition in the side of the ditch that day. When my parents were first married, they lived in rural Kentucky and in the first year of their marriage, they were robbed three times. All three times happened on Sunday morning because they knew my dad was a pastor. They watched my mom go to church and they broke in their house. They broke the windows, they stole possessions. They left lots of their laundry on the front lawn each time. In fact, the very first time when my mom returned home, she thought it was a high school you know, youth group kid pranking them while they were going to church. And then she made her way through the house and noticed things were missing. My mom and dad didn't have a lot of money back then. So why they came back three times, I'm not sure. But more than the physical possessions being missing, the thing that haunted my mom probably even until this day is that sense of being violated. Her, her privacy being invaded. In fact, I think it, it caused some insecurity in my mom that maybe never left her because it happened at such an early part of her life. This man kind of knows what that feeling is. He was on his way, minding his own business when all of it kind of broke loose in his life, right? Well, he was in a bad condition, but Jesus shares some good news. There is help on the way, right? Jesus shares that a priest was going down that same road where that man laid in the ditch. Now, a priest was somebody who understood the heart of God, right? He knew the law. He knew how to love God. He knew that he should love other people, right? He was a mediator between God and his people. He often offered sacrifices and offerings between man and God so that they would be forgiven by God, groups or individuals, worshipers. He had a a, a very impactful role. Priests understood God's heart. Something I didn't understand or notice until these past two weeks studying this passage is that Jesus says that the priest was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. I've always heard preachers talk about the priest going to Jerusalem because they said he was off to do his priestly duty and that's why he couldn't stop and help the man on the side of the road. But Jesus says that this man was probably leaving Jerusalem after working all day and was making his way back home down the road to Jericho that might be why he didn't stop that day he had other things to do he just put in a long shift and he was on his way home he just wanted to sit next to like his family around him his dinner table and just kick his shoes off at the end of a long day right the priest also knew that if that man was dead in the ditch and he got near him or touched him he would have to quarantine himself for seven days because the Old Testament restricted Anybody from touching a dead body, a priest, was held to that same standard. And if you were a high priest, you couldn't even make an exception if it was your mom or dad, sister or brother lying in the ditch. So that man was like, ooh, can't do that. He knew that he couldn't take the risk, and he wasn't willing to take the risk either, right? And so he didn't. He deliberately avoided the man. But that's okay. Jesus says, There's somebody else who can help. There was help right behind the priest. This time, it was a guy who was a Levite, another religious person who knew the heart of God, who worked at the temple, who helped people all the time. In fact, the Levite was a little less critical to the worship of the temple. And so like, if he had to quarantine for seven days, it wouldn't be that big of a deal. He could help. He sees the man in the ditch, but he doesn't help either. Maybe for the same reasons, maybe for others, but just not enough love for his neighbor to stop and help the guy, right? In fact, he may be dead by now. If anyone would have made the list of most likely to help the man in the ditch, these two guys were at the top of the list. They had the right ancestry, they had the right religious beliefs, and they were the most obligated to help. Verse 33, Jesus says, but, it's kind of a cliffhanger. Something different is getting ready to happen Most people listening to Jesus tell that story were expecting that instead of religious people, it was now just going to be a common everyday Jewish man who was going to help the man in the ditch and become the hero of the story. Well, Jesus shocked, even offended the people listening that day because he chose the hero of the story to be a Samaritan. The hatred between Jews and Samaritans is well-documented all throughout scripture. You could say they were certainly non-neighborly to each other, right? Right? It all began when the nation of Israel was divided in two in the year 930 BC when Solomon's son, Jeroboam, rebelled against his father, creating a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And this northern kingdom was often overran by other nations because of their disobedience to God. If you want to look at the rise and fall of the nation of Israel, you can trace it all the way back to their disobedience to God. To God. In fact, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles will tell the story of few great kings and many really evil kings that just caused this vicious cycle in the nation of Israel. Following God, disobeying God, being taken into captivity, repenting, following God, disobeying God, being taken into captivity, over and over and over, like the cycle on a washing machine. Right? Second Kings seventeen very specifically recounts. How sinful and rebellious the people had become. How God begged them to repent, but they resisted. And so it says that God removed them from his presence. Note what I just said there. God removed them from his presence. It did not say that God removed his presence from them. It's just like the Garden of Eden. God didn't walk away from Adam and Eve, but he did banish them from his presence because of their disobedience. Well, in 722 BC, the northern kingdom was conquered by Assyria, and many Jews living in the northern kingdom were exiled to Assyria, and many Assyrians moved into Samaria, which was located in the northern kingdom. Both groups began to intermarry, and that created a mixed-blood race, which was called the Samaritans. Here's a factoid for you, the Samaritans worshipped the same God that the Jewish people worshipped, Yahweh God. But from that moment on, the Jews always viewed the Samaritans as impure. In fact, they basically just treated them like trash from this point forward. That was not the first time and it certainly hasn't been the last time that a person because of their ethnicity or some choice in their past has been looked down on by others. In fact, you may be sitting here today because of your family tree or because of your past or because of maybe a recent choice. You feel the scorn and the hatred from maybe your own family, maybe somebody sitting next to you today who looks down on you simply because of something about your life. And I'm sorry for that. The Samaritans knew what it felt like to be hated. The Jewish people hated the Samaritans so much that they had a prayer that they said many a morning that said this, God, give me a good day, give me my daily bread, keep me safe today, and let there be no Samaritans in the resurrection on the last day. Some rabbis forbid a Jewish person helping a Samaritan woman who was having difficulty or distress giving birth because they didn't want one more Samaritan to come into the world. Jews wouldn't travel through Samaria on their way to anywhere. They would cross over the Jordan River and they would make their way, simply avoiding even walking in that territory. And we, we see a snapshot of that when Jesus was walking through this area. And he met a Samaritan woman at a well where he had stopped to rest. He asked her for a drink of water and she was shocked. She was like appalled because none of that would have ever happened. In fact, that's what she said. You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And there's a little editorial moment there. It says, for Jews don't associate with Samaritans. That word associate means they don't even use the same dishes. It's kind of a mental picture for us, right? Samaritans were viewed as unclean, sinful. What I find really ironic is that the Samaritans were viewed as impure and unclean because of their disobedience to intermarry. They were being judged that way by the Jewish people who were exiled because of their own disobedience. Do you see the pot calling the kettle black in this moment? Well, Jesus makes the hero of the story the Samaritan who shares everything in common with the two religious leaders. They were on the same road. They see the same man, but he responded Differently. Jesus says he took pity on him. Probably better translated, had compassion on him. I think you could simply say he loved his neighbor in that moment. He noticed and he responded. Look, did you catch all the actions that he took? Jesus says he went to him. He bandaged his wounds. He poured oil and wine on them. He put him on his own donkey and took him to an inn, which meant he had to walk the distance to get to the inn, right? And when he got to the inn, he paid in advance for this man to be cared for. It says that Jesus said he gave him two denarii, which was two days wages. It would have paid for two months rent at the inn. It wasn't an overnight stay for the man who was healing from his situation. This Samaritan secured a caregiver. He promised financial coverage for any additional expenses. I think you could say that based on how the Samaritan acted, that love is truly a verb. Here's a public service announcement for all you males in the room. Today is February 13th. Tomorrow is February 14th. And we have called February 14th Valentine's Day. That means if you're married or you have a significant other, it would be a good idea to not just say, I love you, but to show that love is a verb by doing something very tangible for the person that you love. I'm only giving that message to men because we're the ones who typically forget those things, right? Ladies, you're welcome, okay? In this moment, we see the love acting out in the form of this Samaritan man. He interrupted his plans he took a risk. He stepped through the barriers. He got his hands dirty. It was a a most attractive picture of a person who did more than just the minimum. He saw someone who was in need and he did all that he could. It was the need of the neighbor, not his nationality that mattered. He did all of this for someone who hated him, for someone who treated him as an enemy. And after telling that story, Jesus followed up with the The legal expert, he posed a question to him. I think it's a moment of introspection. Jesus says these words, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hand of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Did you notice the legal expert couldn't even bring himself to say the the name of the Samaritan or mention his nationality? Jesus' point was very clear. The question is not, who is my neighbor? The question is, are you going to be a neighbor? Jesus' story shows the vertical as well as the horizontal aspect of a relationship with God. That loving God and loving others is inseparable. I think that's why John says these words, 1 John 4, 20, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister, I think you'd say anyone in that moment, is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. The Levite and the priest saw the man in the ditch and did not choose to love him. Jesus clearly answers the legal expert's question. He takes loving our neighbor to the extreme to include those that we would least like to love. Tim Keller in his book, Ministries of Mercy, says this. The parable of the Good Samaritan clearly defines our neighbor as anyone at all. A relative, friend, acquaintance, stranger, or enemy. Anyone whose need we see. Keller says this, not all men are my brothers, but every man is my neighbor. So let me ask you, do you have a person or a type of person that you would loathe to think of being a hero in any story? Do you have someone that you think you have very good reason not to list on your list of neighbors? Do you have a person that you would find hard to see in heaven? How would you respond if that someone or someone like them moved into the house next door? How do you feel when they sit down next to you at the BMV? How do you feel that you see them across the pew right now sitting in this congregation worshiping in the same place you are? Jesus' parable instructs us that we must love everyone as our neighbor, not just those that we like or agree with. For way too long, our world and even our churches, my friends, have been really good at drawing lines and building walls that separate us from them. Very similar to the context of Jesus' story he just told. And those walls and lines, they build barriers to experiencing community with others and often Those barriers disintegrate into things like hatred and bigotry and all other forms of evil that are opposite of how you and I are supposed to live and how we're supposed to love. We would rather walk to the other side of the road or the room than to reach out in love. So I need to ask you a moment of introspection for all of this. Who are you in Jesus' story? I wonder if you're the thief. Now, none of us would raise our hand. Yep, that's me. I'm the thief. That's my lifelong ambition to be a thief. No, but I need to ask you, are you someone who is so selfishly motivated or maybe just so self-absorbed that you're willing to hurt and victimize others just to get what you want or to prove your point or to get what you think is right or to get your own way? You see, the thief says, what you have is mine And I want it and I'll do anything I can to get it regardless of what happens to you. You're nothing to me, the thief says. You're only in my way between what I want and I'm going to get it. Proverbs has a lot to say about a person described as wicked. And that reflects how the thief would be described. The wicked are warned. There's a lot of warnings in scripture about being wicked, that living this way is not how God desires, designs, or instructs us to live. Being hateful and hate-filled toward others robs people of their dignity and value that they have having been created in the image of God. And when you despise or victimize people because of your preferences or your personality, because of your political views or based on their skin color or anything else that's different from yours, then you are not loving your neighbor. I wonder if you're the priest or the Levite. Again, maybe after describing then you wouldn't raise your hand, but in some ways, the priest and Levite are just like the robber. They're just a little more passive, right? They hide behind their religiosity and piety, but I think they're as hurtful and hateful as the thief. They cause harm by not speaking the truth in love, by not recognizing the non-essential nature of their perspective, or they just say and do hateful things while smiling and saying, God bless you, or continuing to show up for worship services every week. The priest and Levite says, what I have is mine. They are selfish with what God has blessed them with. They are too good or too occupied to notice, listen, learn, or help. N.T. Wright says this, no church, no Christian can remain content with easy definitions, which allows us to watch most of the world lying half dead in the road. The priest and the Levite are convinced that they are right and they wouldn't admit it if they weren't. They allow their biases to hold people at arm's length and they fail to love their neighbor. Daryl Bach, pastor and author, says this, those who run people through a sieve limit their capacity for meaningful relationships. The priest and Levite allowed their rightness to keep them away from righteousness. They chose to Worry about themselves instead of reflecting the heart of God. The Samaritan, wouldn't we all line up to be the Samaritan? Yep, that's me, Phil. I'm the one right there. That's that's how I live, right? The Samaritan knew what it felt like to be an outsider, to be hurt, to be despised, to be violated, to be taken advantage of, or at least just dismissed. That might hurt the worst, right? He wasn't too busy or too self-absorbed or even too prideful to help. I think because he could empathize with the man that was in the ditch that day. He showed compassion. He was the hero in the story because of the way that he loved his neighbor. That person in the path who had a need. A neighbor is the person who sees, who feels, and who serves. Henry Nouwen writes this. Compassion. Asks us to go where it hurts, to enter into the places of pain, to share in brokenness, fear, confusion, and anguish. Compassion challenges us to cry out with those in misery, to mourn with those who are lonely, to weep with those in tears. Compassion requires us to be weak with the weak, vulnerable with the vulnerable, and powerless with the powerless. Compassion means full immersion into the condition of being human. Obviously, Jesus presents the Samaritan as a true picture of what it looks like to love our neighbor. And even as a representative of the way that he lives and loves, he presents him as an example to follow. And we should emulate Jesus as the greatest example of loving our neighbor. He left heaven to come to our world to show us what having a relationship with God is all about. And then because of our inability to obey the law, to be holy or to to love God and others perfectly, he died on the cross in our place, sacrificially meeting our greatest need and offering us wholeness and peace. Do you really know who we all are in the story? We might represent the thief, the Levite, the priest, even want to be the Samaritan, but who we really are in the story is the person in the ditch. You and I have been robbed, beat up, and left for dead by sin and all the other things that this world has to offer us. Without the compassion and unconditional love of a savior who would rescue us, we would be forever lost and separated from God. Because Jesus came in love to bandage us, to bring us healing and to save us, we can now be whole and we can live freely and eternally. When you and I recognize that we're the person in the ditch and we experience the love from Jesus as our neighbor, it motivates us to love our neighbors. Again, Tim Keller says this, a heart that's been touched by the grace of God will inevitably be led to deeds of compassion to the neediest, to the most broken, and even to the most ungrateful and the kind of person who is furthest away from you demographically, socially, physically, Politically and in every other way, real love that can come out of a heart touched by grace is extreme. What would it look like for you and I to love our neighbor, even if it's somebody that we currently despise? I think the first thing we might do is that we might show grace, respecting, offering dignity, listening and learning from others instead of judging them or avoiding, hating them or simply ignoring them. That's what it looks like to start living like the Samaritan, the one who is the example like Jesus, especially those that we might feel impatient to or feel separated from by barriers that we've created. To love our neighbor means that we would care for the needs of others. To love is to notice, to pay attention. And if you see something, then to do something. It's about being proactive and responsive. It's offering instead of waiting to be asked. Here's a rule of thumb I try to live out. When I know somebody is going through a hard time, instead of asking for what they think I might be able to do to help them, I've just tried to take a posture of offering. I don't say, could I bring you dinner or what could I do to help? I just say, I'm bringing dinner. What time can I drop it off? It's putting the responsibility of how to help on my shoulders instead of the person who's limping along already. Does that make sense? To show grace, to care for others' needs, those are ways to love our neighbor. I think it's also about seeking to understand more than just to be understood. Stephen Covey tells a story in The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People about a moment on a busy train leaving New York City. And on that train was a young father with several kids around that were climbing over the chairs and punching each other, just raising all kinds of ruckus on the train. And it was annoying every person who was around them. And as they all watched that scene play out, The the young father felt really insecure. He felt just the eyes of all those people looking at him like daggers. And so he finally kind of made an apology for his children. He said, I'm sorry, those who are around me, my kids are out of control. We've just left the hospital where we were notified that the kid's mom died and won't be there for the rest of their life. Covey talks about how that changed his perspective of what was really going on in that moment. It was about understanding more than just trying to be understood, right? I think that you and I are most commonly offended more than we are informed. And I think that criticism is running so rampant in our culture today, I think it's worse and more contagious than the Omicron variant ever will be. And it's certainly much more difficult to treat, right? We all feel the need to just share our opinion and tell other people what we think. And we're quick to dismiss anyone who would think differently than we do, right? When we seek to understand, we aren't quick to make judgments. We treat others the way that we would want to be treated. That should sound familiar. It's something Jesus told us to do. We should treat others respectfully, gracefully, and lovingly. I think if we're going to love like our love our neighbors, then you and I have to recognize as, uh, as well as address our biases. This is much more serious than teasing each other about our favorite sport teams, my friends. It, we have to recognize that our upbringing, our experiences, our environments, and even the choices that you and I have made do influence the way that we see the world, how we think about the world, and especially how we treat others. I'll just be very vulnerable. I have had to work through and continually still do have to work through the biases that are part of my life. The way I think and feel about people who choose not to worship the way that I do, who don't believe the same things that I believe, who have more resources than me. Then they have to be cheaters. They have to be materialistic. I mean, I've got all kinds of descriptions for those who have more resources than me. I also have a lot of words that I think about those who have less resources than me, right? I have to think about those people that have hurt me or those people who have hurt somebody that I love. All those experiences and all those things that go through my mind will influence the way that I approach life and certainly how I treat others. And so you and I have to work through what those biases are in our own life. We have to address them. And instead of them allowing them to build walls and barriers to separate, we have to find ways to build bridges through recognizing that our own experiences are not everyone else's experience. We have to realize that we might not be as objective as we think we actually are. We cannot allow pride or stubbornness to keep us from being a loving neighbor, even to those people who may have hurt us. We need to build bridges and not walls by being open Patient, non judgmental, gracious, and forgiving. Let me end on one other way that we can love our neighbor, and that's just simply celebrating joys and also sharing sorrows. Romans 12 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That rejoice point gets a little tricky when somebody gets something that we want. It's a little harder to be happy than when their team wins. When they get the promotion you were working so hard for, when they get the house that they've always wanted and you are still waiting for it, whatever the scenario is, we should still rejoice with those who are rejoicing and we should mourn with those who are mourning even though we can't maybe identify or completely empathize with their pain. It does not let us off the hook on either of those actions. Be happy for other successes. Be present in moments of sorrow and loss. Love your neighbor is just showing up and being there with a heart open, allowing them to be who they are and what they are in that moment. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we'll always agree when we do. One of my favorite descriptions of Jesus is that he was full of grace and truth. I don't think it was a 50-50. I think it was 100% of both. Full of grace and full of truth. And I'll tell you that I've tried on my own human effort to live that way. And here's what I found. I've failed miserably. (laughs) The only way that I have found to be full of grace and truth is to be full of the Holy Spirit. To let God do the work in this wretched heart of mine. I wouldn't walk by somebody who's having a dark day and stuck in a ditch ready to die. And my heart would be so broken for them because I was that person once laying in a ditch and somebody helped me. If nobody else, Jesus helped me, that motivates me to look at the entire world and everybody in it much differently. The way that Jesus would. And I can tell you, I need his grace and his mercy and I need his help to love my neighbor. And if you do too, then I'd encourage you to just join me in prayer right now. Let's pray together. God my prayer is that you would reveal to me and to any of us the blind spots the biases the hard-heartedness that comes so easy it takes very little work to hate God it just seems to be kind of wired up in us because of the effect of sin and the world that we live in doesn't encourage us to reach out in love it just continues to impress upon us that we should circle the wagons, that we should hold close to our own, that we should hold people at arm's length. God, that is not the way that you treated us. That is not the way that Jesus lived here on this earth. And so if we say that we love you, if we say that Jesus is our king, God, we have to change. It's not gonna become by behavior modification. It's gonna become because of the work that you're doing in our life. You have to save us from ourselves. Save us from sin and save us from this world, God, and help us to operate, think, behave, love like the Samaritan, like the example of Jesus. God, we need your help in that. Would you motivate us by helping us remember that we're the people who were in the ditch? God, my prayers if somebody finds themselves today lying in the ditch, that they would feel your love. And they wouldn't leave here today without receiving that love, whether that's Accepting you as Savior and Lord or just feeling the embrace of people who love you around them? God, make both of those happen today. God, as a result of all that, would you help all of us notice and respond to people that you place in our path, people that you have led us down a road on purpose to see and to respond and to share your love because we have to, Because we should, because we want to. Because that's what you would do. Help us to be good neighbors, loving neighbors to everyone and anyone. I pray that through the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.